Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephen Sadman, Patterson Chair in International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also the director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm episodes drop every other Wednesday. Our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Each week, I will be talking to one of our four co-hosts, Aaron Gibbs von Braunschott, Vanessa Kimball, Lena Tamsetto, and Arthur Wilczynski. Thanks for listening. Today on Battle Rhythm, our co-host is Lena Tamsetto. I got to meet her in person for the first time at the year Yay. and a half. Lena. <laughs> Hi, Steve. It was great to finally meet you in person. It was. It was great to uh, meet you in person. And the others that I've been, you know, working with over the past yes, two, coming up to three years. Yes, you were the first CDSM postdoc. So this is uh -huh. really year three of your involvement with our network. Well, thanks so much for inviting me to the year ahead conference. We've always talked about how it's a bit outside of my scope and my expertise, but I really saw, you know, a lot of alignment in what was presented there to the work that I do. So it was wonderful to see that. What was your favorite part of the year ahead besides meeting me? Well, that was definitely the highlight. Meeting the others and particularly the, the group of students that are up and coming um, and to see their passion in the area and meeting other people that are doing work in the stuff that I'm interested in. So I'm one of those folks that are really keen on you know, world politics, world events, but don't have the research knowledge or training to really understand the complexity of it all. So it was really great for me to be able to sit and actually learn um, and attend a conference where I was a true learner opposed to uh, someone who was presenting. So that was a treat. So thank you. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, we had four panels. The first was on learning from Ukraine's uh, successes and, and what I called Russia's aggressive failures. And we had Professor Nita Tannenwald from Brown, retired Lieutenant General Mike Day, and Professor Sheena Greitens of the University of Texas at Austin. She was participating remotely. And they had a really good conversation about the nuclear implications in the case of Nina, what China was learning in the case of Sheena, and what Canada is learning from this in the case of Mike. That was our first session. Our second session was something a little different where Kathy Blue, our visiting defense fellow, and I had a little give and take about what does it mean to be a visiting defense fellow and about what the CDS is up to. And then we had, I for me, was one of the highlights was the rollout of the CDSN podcast network. We are now our own network. The idea of this is that having our own podcast network allows us to amplify and connect with other podcasts in, in the country on defense and security. We have two new podcasts joining us. So we have the old ones, Us Battle Rhythm, and our Francophone podcast in partnership with the Network for Strategic Analysis called Concierge de Security. That's been on a hiatus for a little while while they've been in search of a new co-host for Sarah Mir and Martin Brule, but that's been fixed. So they'll be starting up with new podcasts in 2023. And then we had Security Escape join us. Security Escape is a group of Calgary graduate students at the Center for Military 
Security and Strategic Studies. So this gives us a, a more uh, Western perspective and it has graduate students who are doing all the organizing and getting interviews and perspectives. And we also are going to have a new podcast in the spring, the NATO Field Report, which is going to be organized by folks at Simon Fraser and UBC because there's the NATO Field School run out of Simon Fraser by Alex Mowens. And he's got a couple of students who are going to help him produce field reports. That is having some stuff about the NATO Field School, which is an effort to train the next generation on, on what's going on with NATO. They have classwork in, at SFU, and then they go to Brussels, Latvia, and other places. And so they'll actually have reports from the field. They'll have they'll tape it while they're out there and getting their perspectives on what they're learning. So that'll be a spring and summer podcast. And we're open to adding new ones to our network as, as time goes along. So if our listeners have ideas for defense and security podcasts, they know of, of a defense security podcast in Canada that could use more amplification, could would make a, a good fit with the ones that we've got, let us know. Part of this process was fixing our connection with Apple. While we have been producing podcasts all year long, some people thought we had stopped in August because our Apple connection wasn't working well. We were continually putting that things out on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. But for those who rely on our friends in California, we they can now get our all of our podcasts. It was, it was fun at the dinner where somebody said, hey, when are you going to start the podcast? It's like, we never stopped. So we've fixed that we now. We just weren't looking in the right places. <laughs> they weren't looking at the right places. You know, people just wait for things to appear on their 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 device or their their platform and their app. And so now it's fixed. So I'm very happy about that. We have a new logo for the podcast network that Carol Dorias put together, and she has a great eye for graphics. So I'm really thankful to her for that. So that was the morning. We then had a panel on civil military relations where I didn't do much of the talking, but I did moderate. There was a presentation by Jay Sue Boucher of Calgary and. Charlotte Duval-Lantois of Women in Defense Defense and Security. They presented a project that they're working on. The data hasn't quite come in yet, but it's on how does discrimination affect attitudes about the military? So that was one. Uh, Andrea Lane presented a great presentation that presented both her under her hat as a researcher, as a dissertation PhD student, and as a DRDC person. So she's constantly going back and forth about which side of her personality or, or role was presenting which particular things. That was very dynamic and, and, and interesting. And then Alexandra Richards, a PhD student at Simon Fraser, presented her study of uh, generational attitudes in the military. So that was a really stimulating panel. And then the last panel was organized by our collaborators, Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security Canada, where they wanted to talk about redefining finding national security because the national security apparatus has actually been posing a threat to Canadians, particularly those who are in groups that have been historically excluded, such as Muslim Canadians, Black Canadians, and so forth. So uh, that was the day and had a really good uh, time. And we had a really good meal at Prohibition House, which was a, a neat little restaurant uh, in the middle of Ottawa. So that was the day. And uh, I was very happy with the way it went. It was a great range of speakers and topics that are, you know, there's a, a common thread with you know security but i mean definitely very dynamic um and i like i was saying before i really enjoyed being a true learner in this area of work so really appreciated the the invitation to join me this year and for those who couldn't attend and couldn't watch while it was streaming it will be put up in youtube in english on our cdsn youtube channel and in french on our CSID's channel, I want to say. We just need to do a little bit of processing before it goes up. So that's that. While we've been doing that, there's been stuff going on. So let's get to it. This morning, we're taping on Tuesday, uh, the 13th of December. The Minister of National Defense, Anita Anand, tabled her report. She had promised that she would report to Parliament by the end of the year about the status of how she is responding to the Arbor Report. 
as you're working on one of the key minds networks that's focused on sexual misconduct, uh -huh. uh, along with Margaret McCrinnan, uh, who was on the stakeholder briefing yesterday that I was on, Lena, what do you find striking or what do you find not surprising at all in terms of the report? What, what are your reactions to it? I think what's striking to me right now is the level of enthusiasm that the minister has taken to address the issues of, of misconduct and not just misconduct as, you know, the, the incidences, but looking at potentially overhauling the entire system that has allowed this imbalance and abuse of power to perpetuate over the years and throughout the ranks. So one of the things that is really striking in this tabled report is you know, the commitment to do a review of military colleges, you know, because that's is part of the entire system. And that is where people are, for the most part, brought in and trained and presented with beliefs and values and ideologies that will sustain them throughout the course of their career. So the fact that there is this outright statement and commitment to examine what is going on and bringing in, I believe, like an educational specialist to facilitate that says to me that there is this level of enthusiasm commitment that may have been there in the past. I mean, I, I admittedly, I didn't follow things quite as closely, you know, when this came up before, but I have a sense that, you know, the current minister is really going ahead and, and making, you know, a, a true commitment to, to change. Well, I guess that's one of the questions is looking at, at the report, I skimmed it yesterday. And it, for me, it's hard to tell how much of this is actual progress versus how much of this is promises to make progress? How many uh -huh. decisions are actually being made? Still use the number that they've agreed in full to do 17 and then, you know, work on the well, other 31 out of the 48. And so I actually told the public affairs people is we could just really use a table that lists each of the recommendations and its status because it's it gets confusing about all the different recommendations since there's so many. I do think the appointment of someone to monitor is important. And that was that was one that was the last recommendation, I believe, of the 48 or 47. And I think that's that's really important to provide someone that will force the minister to stay on this. And I think the minister is sincere about it. It's just that structural change is hard. Yeah, it, definitely. I mean, it's again, it's it goes beyond the military, right? So there are implications to other ministries, other documents. I mean, I, I'm just looking at the report here. You know, there needs to be alignment with the Criminal Code of Canada, the Canada Labor Code, the Canadian Human Rights Act. So it it goes beyond the military and and the need to restructure that. So it's a long haul. I think the perspective is a lot more holistic and mm -hmm. higher, higher level than it has been in the past. But again, you know, I'm fairly new to this, so I can only, you know, see what's and evaluate what's in front of me right now. Sure. Well, I, I look forward to hearing what you and Margaret have to say about it uh, as, as you take a closer look and follow the actual changes. You know, one of the big things that was in it that got most of the attention was what to do about the Royal Military Colleges. Mm -hmm. And the report doesn't really, you know, tell us how much progress they made on that, except for... They've rejected one thing, which is in the report, Arbor recommends getting rid of having the conduct, uh, having the cadets do a lot of the oversight monitoring of the behavior of the other cadets, that there's a, a program in our Royal Military College, as well as similar institutions elsewhere, where the cadets are responsible for discipline. But this has been problematic in its execution in Canada. And so it was interesting to see that this is one of those recommendations where where they basically said, we're not going to do what Arbor wants, but we're going to change in a way that will make it work better. And so I found that to be striking. 
the larger question what to do the royal military college is still open which is uh-huh. do they do we keep it do we change it to a more sandhurst model where military officers go to some four university and then have the royal military college as a finishing school uh-huh. i don't know i think there's a lot of uncertainty about what happens next but radical reform of the military colleges is something that was always going to be extremely controversial. So I'm not surprised that they really haven't made any decisions on it yet. Well, I mean, it's being tabled. So it's something that is, you know, up for examination and, you know, long overdue to have a dedicated resources to take a look at how things are being run, how you know, cadets are being trained and what that may mean for the future of the military in Canada. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. Was there anything else in the report that that struck your fancy? I like the idea of a table, you know, having some sort of metric, something laid out for people that are actually tracking, giving us additional information as to who is going to be responsible for it, you know, what changes need to be made. Uh, A bit more of a roadmap than, you know, a written report, which is always nice, but some actual metrics for those of us who are following things quite closely and seeing how civilians can play a role in, in, in supporting this or challenging the plans to move forward. So I think that might be a nice little appendix for next time. You know, what the, the minister described it as, you know, an ambitious roadmap. Let's be a little bit more transparent as to what that is. They did say there would be an online portal that would have lots of information about the progress. So that's something they have to do is to put together regular tracking of all the stuff online. Uh-huh. So that way we don't have to wait for a yearly report. We don't have to wait for a new monitor to report. It should be updated on a regular basis. So they'll get to there, but all this is slow, but that's just the nature of the beast, I guess. Uh-huh. So we'll wait and see. I mean, the, the news conference is probably happening right now as we're recording this. So yeah, only time will tell. Yes. What happened much faster was... The arrests of a bunch of random German folks who are seeking mm-hmm. to overthrow the German government, given that it was led by some guy who was, is a prince? He uh, is Heinrich the Thirteenth, the descendant of, I guess, the the last, you know, of some monarchs, you know, pre-1918. <laughs> so you know, longing for the days of yore. Yes, it's always the days of yore. So when you saw this, what did you think about it? The more I got into it, I kept thinking, you know, is this a movie script that I'm reading? It just seems to ravel and seems more and more absurd as I'm reading it. But then realizing, oh, this is real life and we need to start paying attention to these to these folks. Because although, you know, the arrests, from what I understand, there was no actual risk for them to overthrow the German government. The fact is that they've made enough of an impact that folks like you and I are having a conversation about it, which is worrisome. Yeah. I mean, it, people were saying it was a coup attempt. I would say it was a coup plot. Uh-huh. It was a, it was it was people thinking about a coup. It was not people actually doing a coup. They actually hadn't set anything in motion yet. And it didn't the disturbing thing is not so much that had members of the AFID, the the German right way far right party. That's not a uh-huh. big surprise that some people from that party were involved. What was disturbing was they actually had some people from, you know, the police uh, who were in the neighborhood, ex-military types. Yes. And the Germans have disbanded some units that have far-right people in them, military units. So Germany, just like everybody else, has a far-right problem. And what's disturbing about that for me is if there's a country on the planet that faced its past 
and also experienced extreme costs for having a far right experience is Germany. They it's very striking when you go to Germany that you don't see memorials to the Nazis. What you see, you know, in terms of like you go to the American South, you see memorials to the Confederates who try uh-huh. to, you know, uh-huh. to secede. But if you go to Germany, there aren't memorials to the Nazis. Instead, what you see is a lot of memorials to the victims and to the resistors of the Nazis. Uh-huh. You see the various historical sites turned into educational facilities. So when I was in Berlin in 2019, I went to Sachsenhausen, which is a, the site of a concentration camp. And it's very striking in that the campus on one side of the road, on the other side of the road is a training facility for the German police. And it used to be an SS training facility. Oh, okay. And so they very deliberately are using the history of Germany to train the police not to be a threat to the people. And then mm-hmm. in Sachsenhausen, it's all about the what the Nazis did, the complicity of, of Germans. And so it's not anything, it, and and they had school groups going through it. And so it's an effort to engage in public education about what happened and why it should never happen again. And so to see their elements of this stuff going on in Germany is, is very disturbing. On the other hand, there is far right wing extremists everywhere. And what is also interesting about this group is that they seem to be inspired by the January 6th people in the United States. Yeah. And they seem to be QAnon adjacent. So it seems that conspiracy theorizing is spreading far and wide, causing people to endanger themselves and, you know, their lives, their their livelihoods by engaging in these kinds of efforts. It means that these folks are going to jail, which is where they belong, but it means that they've been swept up in craziness. So you didn't mention that Germany has handled their their historical role in a very different way where, you know, compared to the States, there aren't, you know, memorials to Nazi leaders and whatnot. How do you think that has played out in the rise of the right? I think it's still a very marginal thing in, in Germany. Okay. So the AFD, which is the far right party, mm-hmm. does have enough votes to get into parliament. So that's greater than 5%. And they have done decently in some elections. Okay. But it's not the, quite the same thing as happened in other countries where white supremacists have a greater share of political power. But it does show that there's no guarantees that people will learn from the past. The, the lessons we want them to learn, they'll learn other lessons that will encourage them to engage in this behavior. But again, because you have, you know, Heinrich the 13th is not exactly a pivotal person in German politics. So we need to pay attention to this. Mm-hmm. But I think it's more marginal in Germany than elsewhere. But I think it gets more play in Germany than elsewhere because of Germany's past. You know, in the American election of November, the good news is that most election deniers who were new candidates did not win office. So you had a lot of right. running for secretary yeah. of state or governor who didn't win in the United States. Yeah. However, you still have the majority of Republicans in the House and the Senate who are election deniers. So you still have a party that is deeply compromised by its dalliance with Trump and with the far right. Um, we're in Germany, we're seeing that, you know, they're making up, you know, at most 5% of parliament. Yeah. Whereas in Canada, you know, the People's Party of Canada has been getting very few votes and didn't get enough votes to get into parliament. Uh-huh. But you also have the leader of the Conservative Party embrace the extremists who occupied Ottawa. Yeah. So, you know, I'm more worried about Canada than I am about Germany. And I'm more worried uh-huh. about the United States than I am about Canada. What I, I find be- interesting is that there's, you know, this whole commonality with the right, it seems, as you're mentioning, you know, these folks, is that the pandemic really sort of spurred this, I guess, uprising or increased visibility amongst these groups. Increased resentment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Against the existing government, I guess, you know, the perceived perceived infringement on, on their rights. They seem to, these groups seem to have that in common. And, you know, it, it just maybe the timing of it all 
has you know, gave them a greater platform to become more present in our everyday in a way that they didn't seem to be, or maybe I just head in the sand. No, I th- I, th- I think you're right that that there's more of this than there used to be. That partly it's aided by Russian and Chinese disinformation campaigns. Partly it's aided by certain media enterprises in the United States mm-hmm. and elsewhere. But it is resentment politics. And that's what populism really is. And there's more populism now than there was before because there's more resentment. People are more distrustful of government because government didn't handle the pandemic particularly well in any place. Some places did better than others, but it also imposed more costs on citizens. Even if the response was good, it required citizens to do things that they didn't have to do before. So there's resentment for that. I think that's all generating hostility and distrust, which means most people aren't going to do anything about it, but it means that some people are. And we've seen more extremist violence, and it's far right. It's not far left extremist violence. The numbers are very, very clear on that. Has this happened before in the past? Resentment politics? It's my new word. Yeah. I like it. I mean, we had the Nazis rise in the 1930s. We had America first in the 1930s. We've had, this is not the first populist effort or movement, It's but it's more coordinated. It's more contagious. It's more related than it used to be. Dark side of globalization. Right. And that in the past has come out in similar circumstances. So mistrust in the government, sacrifices, you know, greater sacrifices from individuals. So I guess the, the stage has been set, but... Like you said, with globalization, it's definitely, I guess, more contagious, as you said. Yeah, well, we'll see. Uh, I do think that we're in a very challenging time. On the other hand, the Russians, by getting their butts kicked in, in Ukraine, are not helping the populist cause. Because for some reason, those populists have, have, have had some affinity for, for Putin. Uh-huh. And Putin has done nothing but embarrass himself. On the flip side, with higher prices, energy shortages, particularly in Europe, that's probably going to foster more resentment uh, as the winter becomes a little more difficult. Right, right. So... It goes both ways, I suppose. It's definitely not a movie script that I've been reading. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one thing that did go sort of by script was the the events in in Peru. Mm -hmm. Uh, The vocab word for today is auto golpe, which an auto golpe is when a leader in power tries to extend their rule and seize more power. It's Spanish based on the notion of a self-coup rather than norte coup d'etat is when somebody or some group tries to seize power. An auto golpe is when somebody tries to can stay in power. And so what we had was Castillo, the president of Peru, facing corruption charges, decided the best way to handle that, particularly the, the his Congress challenged him on that, was try to disband Congress. And Congress said, no, thank you, and basically impe- immediately impeached him, and he was sent off to jail. As someone who studies civil and military relations, this was interesting to me. As someone who does not study civil and military relations, what was your reaction to this uh, strangeness? Again, <laughs> like a movie plot but this one is much cleaner i guess where i you know i wonder like what was his motivation do you is there any sense of what castillo's motivation to try to obtain more power is it just to get the corruption charges sort of off his back was that the motivation for that i think so i I think that that was basically it he didn't want to be held responsible for being corrupt and the best way to do that was to or what he perceived as the best way to do that was to get congress to go away for a while and so in the, again, not someone who studies this kind of stuff, is this typical of a response when a leader has charges? Been, yes. Or do they sort of just like go along with it? Or, you know, he he's you know, pulling a, a trump card and trying to push through it. It varies across the world about how do politicians respond to these things. Okay. Uh, part of it is that Peru 
This is not the only time they've had an auto golpe. In fact, the term really came to be discussed when uh, Fujimori, who was a previous president uh-huh. of Peru, seized power and ruled essentially undemocratically for a while. So countries that have coups tend to have coups. That's one of the right. findings of of the the, stu- the scholarly study of, of coups, that if your military thinks it's legitimate to interfere and seize power, chances are it'll do it more than once, that that the, the first iteration will lead to second and third and fourth iterations. I'm guessing, I, I don't think there's been much study of autogolpes as there of, of coups, because uh, yes, yes. they're hard to code and there's, there's not as many of them, and they just haven't gotten as much attention from scholars, but I think this is a new field of research. But I would say, say that I would expect an auto golpe or self coup in Peru to be more likely than someplace else because of its prior experience. Right. Uh, once you erode norms about the proper role of presidents and congresses and militaries, mm-hmm. they're really hard to build up again, which is why scholars of civil military relations are always yabbering about let's not violate the norms of civ- civilian control of military or of good civil military relations because they are so hard to to build back up again and once they're eroded they encourage more and more violations so i think that is the take home message from this is that we need to be wary about this and it's and the good news is that the chief of the military uh, the chief of the army resigned on the spot essentially that he would refuse to implement a curfew the president ordered as part of his seizure right. of power and so several other ministers resigned and so the immediate response of not supporting this may ultimately help to reinforce the norms by showing that the political community saw this as illegitimate. Nobody really thought that this made much sense and it was handled quite quickly. I mean, what it also says to me is that there's a lot of instability right now. If you've got the you know, head of the, the army stepping down, various politicians stepping down, you know, ultimately the leadership of, of the country being arrested, you know, how quickly do you anticipate things to restabilize? Just because so many institutions are affected by this. Well, I think it really depends on what happens with the next election. So what we're going to see is a new election, and we'll see how long that Congress lasts. If we see these kinds of rivalries between the president and the Congress about, no, I'll disband you, no, I'll disband you, going back and forth, then that's going to create more turmoil. So I I can't guarantee, because they've had these crises pretty much for the past six years, if not longer than that. Mm-hmm. So I, I couldn't begin to guess when the place will stabilize. The good news is that at least this events of the last couple, the last week or so have not been violent. So right. that's, that's, that's good news. But whether the country will actually be stabilized anytime soon, I, I have no idea. What I'd like to do now is move on to our interview of the week, which is with Khazar Ahmed. He organized a workshop last week, uh, CDSN workshop funded by D&D's Minds program, on nature-induced or nature-triggered emergency operations. His organization, Conflict and Resilience Research Institute Canada, has been working on this elsewhere, but also in Canada. And what we're finding is that there hasn't been really enough research done in Canada on the politics and dynamics of emergency operations. And some of the military is getting more and more involved in, and there's been some discussion about how this is a challenge, but what do what do we do? How do we figure out the way ahead? Given that climate change means we're gonna have more and more of these things, it was a really interesting conversation we had in, in Winnipeg, and I hope that people find the conversation I had with him earlier this week to be interesting. And that's gonna be on our podcast next. Lena, as always, really great to talk to you. Thanks, Steve. Same. Great to finally see you in person, <laughs> and hopefully we'll have more of a chance to chat the next time we see each other. Hope you and yours have a great holidays, and I hope the listeners of our podcast have great holidays. This is our last podcast before we start again in mid-January.
Happy holidays, everyone. Enjoy your break, Lena. You too, Steve. Today, we're talking with Khazar Ahmed. He is the director of the Conflict and Resilience Research Institute Canada. And I got to hang out with him last week while he ran a workshop on nature-triggered domestic emergency operations. Welcome to Battle Rhythm, Khazar. Thank you so much, Steve. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. The pleasure is all mine. So tell us a little bit about your research institute and how it came together. So uh, Conflict and Resilience Research Institute Canada was founded in December 9, uh, 2017. And it coincided actually with the exodus of Rohingya refugees from Myanmar to Bangladesh. And since I come uh, from that area, I thought that I should be able to contribute in the study and research in mass displacement and the conflict that relates to displacement. Uh, since the foundation of Conflict and Resilience Research Institute, uh, our main uh, focus uh, areas are conflict and conflict transformation, peace building, studying a uh, number of local and uh, global uh, geopolitical issues. And uh, given my background in the military in Bangladesh Army, I'm very much uh, interested in studying uh, armed forces roles in domestic operations as well as, as, well as international operations like UN peacekeeping uh, areas, so and so forth. And uh, since then, we have undertaken significant research activities that includes uh, federal government's public safety uh, project, uh, which is called Extremism and Radicalization to Violence Prevention in Manitoba, in short, ERIM. It's a three years of uh, funded project sponsored by University of Winnipeg now. We are in the second year. And it, this project uh, encompasses uh, educating high school and middle school teachers in Manitoba in understanding the nature of uh, extremism and violence uh, that is uh, prevailing in our societies. The second project, we are also uh, in, a, in a very last stage of completion. We are working uh, for uh, Department of Heritage Canada's uh, a specific project uh, fighting disinformation on Ukraine war which is coming out of Russia and uh, various Russian apparatus. So we are looking into the nature of this information and how it impacts the mm -hmm. Russian and Ukrainian diaspora living here. And finally, of course, very important for us is the MINDS uh, program sponsored by uh, Steve's uh, organization, CDSN. And here we are uh, actually implementing the uh, component of the nature-triggered uh, domestic operations and uh, stakeholders experiences and roles. Beside that, uh, our ongoing activities includes transformative dialogue, uh, which uh, technically is webinar uh, since the COVID-19 uh, struck. And we have already launched, I mean, uh, held up 120 webinars. Uh, these are available in our YouTube channels and it encompasses a large variety of topics. For example, uh, Rohingya genocide prevention, awareness building. Then we spoke about residential schools, uh, indigenous uh, trauma and reconciliation, then realized radicalization as student group, so and so forth. So this is our ongoing project. And in terms of project activities, uh, we are very much involved in uh, refugee children education in refugee camps in Bangladesh. We have run uh, one small project funded by MCIC, a large project is uh, ongoing, funded by Rotary International Global Grant, 
And we just finished a remote learning model for the children in the refugee camps in Ireland. Uh, it's called Bhashan Chor. So we are very much into uh, teaching uh, and educating uh, refugee female children in the camps. Excellent. That's a lot of work you're doing, a lot of good work you're doing. I met you through Emdet Haik at the University of Manitoba and uh, Niru Agarwal, who is at uh, York University. And together, you guys are running essentially one of the four research themes that we're operating on these days. The, the CDSN got funding from the from D&D, from the Mines Program for Global Emergencies and Canadian Resilience. And your focus is much more on the Canadian side of things. I know you have this whole interest in, in refugee flows, migration elsewhere, but for this project, it's really about trying to figure out how can how is Canada responding to emergencies at home and uh, across the country, and particularly those involving uh, the Canadian Armed Forces. And when I first started looking into this, I was really surprised that there's not a whole lot of study about the Canadian military's role in Canada when it's not very far north or abroad. And so I'm curious as to what's driving your curiosity in this area. What are the key questions that interest you when it comes to Canadian emergency operations? Thank you, Steve. It's, a, it's a, I think, very intriguing question. And I was very much interested uh, working with Professor Huck uh, when he approached me about the topic. Uh, and at that uh, point in time, I think it is um, 2020 or early 2021. I can't remember exactly. But at that time, uh, he told me that uh, if I'd be interested in uh, participating in this research, and I immediately jumped. Uh, there are three reasons, actually. So uh, first, I'd go back. I would like to give our audience a brief background of mine. I served in Bangladesh military for 19 years, uh, and uh, then I migrated to Canada to do my PhD. But during this whole 19 years of career, I actually took part in two of the largest uh, nature-triggered emergencies in 2006 and 8. Uh, these are Ailas and Sidor. Uh, these, these are the name of the cyclone that hit in the south southeastern part of Bangladesh. And we worked jointly with the American uh, military in terms of uh, rehabilitation and reconstruction of, of uh, in the aftermath of the cyclone. So I, I come with a lot of uh, on-ground experience uh, working together uh, in, a, in a framework uh, within these multi-agencies and uh, the problems and challenges I kind of endured during my uh, tour of duty in Bangladesh. And uh, in Canada, I uh, was uh, participating in some of the uh, disasters. Uh, actually, these are floods in Manitoba because it's prairie areas in 2013. And I do very much recall uh, the way uh, the province mobilized its sources and uh, essentially uh, uh, the Canadian Armed Forces were also mobilized. Although in, in a scale, it is much uh, uh, lesser than the 1997 flood, but 2013 flood was also uh, quite significant in the western part of uh, Manitoba. The area is called Portage La Prairie because we have a diversion there and uh, we were deployed uh, working together with CAF. So at that time, I recall uh, we had a lot of uh, uh, kind of uh, coordination issues uh, in terms of working together. And that triggered my imagination when Professor Huck approached me. And I thought, yeah, we, we should really understand uh, when and how uh, those all agencies come together and uh, they start working uh, within a very short period of, period of time because there's no time for preparation. Uh, these are all mobilized within 48 hours, 72 hours. 
and then everybody goes into action and everybody is trying to do their best but there are you know uh, numerous uh, challenges that come out of the uh, you know crisis itself and uh, of course that goes back to the uh, the agencies and their capacities and resources and thirdly, I would mention that uh, I'm very much interested in this particular project uh, with regards to indigenous population, indigenous reserves, which are actually the epicenter of all these kind of nature triggered emergencies. Especially, I can tell you from Manitoba perspective, we have so many reserves, those were impacted by either uh, flood uh, or forest fire, and people are getting evacuated so often. So I was, I'm very much interested here to develop a, a kind of knowledge base about indigenous people and how do they face these things and how the cooperation and collaboration from various stakeholders, including uh, CAF, uh, Canadian Armed Forces, you know, happen and, and how really people share their resources and information together to fight out the natural uh, emergencies. And this is, uh, I think, uh, the most important part for my motivation, uh, because as you rightly mentioned, there are hardly any researches done in this area, particularly knowledge mobilization, mm -hmm. and find out the you know, nitty gritties of the coordination, command and control aspects. So I, I would stop here by saying that these are the three major reasons uh, motivated me to take on this project. Well, I was really, surprised from, uh, during the workshop i learned a lot but one of the things that stuck out the most was this notion that there you have communities who are being evacuated all the time you know every year they're getting evacuated every other year they're getting evacuated and it's so destructive and and the presenters did a really good job of talking about how traumatizing it is to have this situation where you're you know these these communities are constantly being uprooted Part of this has to do with the fact that we've poorly invested in the infrastructure of these, of these areas so that they, these people are very reliant on, on external support and because they're, they don't have the necessarily investments to manage the waters and all the rest of it. It would seem to me that the first step would really be trying to figure out how to prevent weather from becoming an emergency. This is something that and the Hawk talked about, which is that we get weather all the time. We don't necessarily need to get emergencies unless we are poorly prepared for it. And so I guess the, the first question I have is, shouldn't we invest more in infrastructure around these areas so that way they don't face emergencies all the time? Absolutely. And uh, I would say that it's, it's a wonderful question. And uh, before I really explain uh, my position on this uh, question, let me tell you, Steve, uh, frankly, there are a number of indigenous communities, uh, those who were evacuated two years ago, Mm -hmm. And they are still living in Winnipeg, and right. this is, uh, you know, something uh, might be a surprise for many of us in Canada that in 2022 we are talking about, uh, you know, hundreds of our indigenous uh, uh, people living in uh, Winnipeg hotels for last one and two years since they were evacuated. They have never returned to their uh, home places because partly it was damaged, destroyed, and it was not rebuilt. Uh, so uh, now coming back to your questions, uh, yeah, I think so. The, one of the ways we uh, discussed uh, in in the workshop, of course, uh, and also in number of uh, you know sessions, we we spoke about building, uh, let's say, dikes and uh, uh, other structures, and especially I'm I'm very concerned about these evacuation things because it is it is creating a long term impact in the uh, social psychological 
aspects of our indigenous uh, uh, population. Uh, I mean, those who are impacted, of course, not all. So uh, this is really um, kind of triggering my imagination that what else we can do uh, other than preparing dikes and embankments and other things, because forest fire is one thing, uh, uh, Steve, I don't know how to really prevent it uh, mm -hmm. unless uh, we do <laughs> come up with uh, uh, some technological breakthrough somewhere down the road. But uh, the point is evacuation to city, uh, Winnipeg particularly, I, I don't know whether it is really fruitful or we can do something else uh, somewhere close by so that uh, they can go back to their original places and rebuild. Uh, and, and the question of resilience comes, uh, you know, uh, uh, from there. So, um, yeah, I, I think, yes, we should invest in infrastructure, uh, but there are certain uh, nature triggered things uh, would keep happening, uh, which I think uh, uh, is beyond uh, construction of X number of, uh, you know, structure, rather it is uh, kind of the way we mm -hmm. uh, think uh, how to really rehabilitate uh, people from their places for a short period of time. And again, so that they can uh, join their uh, folks and join their uh, original places as soon as they can. Well, and there's something in between that I, I was thinking about, and you can tell me whether it makes any sense or not. Why do they have to be evacuated in Winnipeg? Uh, could we build, you know, resources and uh, places near the communities, uh, somewhere in between the far north and Winnipeg that, you know, other places inhabited by the First Nations who are fellow communities that they would they might not be similar to as as much as we like to think, but they're certainly more similar to each other than they are to to the the, the streets of Winnipeg, and so the evacuation wouldn't be as far, wouldn't be as alienating, wouldn't be as traumatizing. Does that make any sense? I think so, and I do recall uh, you have uh, shared your ideas uh, during our workshop session, and I, I think so. It makes really sense uh, to me as well that. Uh, can we really um, think about and uh, research a bit more and find out whether we can relocate them uh, not in the Winnipeg Urban Center, uh, but uh, somewhere close by something uh, as an emergency shelter, uh, although, I mean, this could be placed anywhere else. Uh, but I think it's high time to think about it because of the fact that this kind of emergencies, uh, you know, nature triggered, is, is going to uh, occur more frequently because of the climate change. We have heard uh, you know, hundreds of speakers speaking in COP27 in Egypt. And I did uh, uh, give a long uh, talk with MCIC uh, just three weeks ago on COP27 and its impact on, on the displacement. So I think uh, this is high time uh, we explore uh, your idea of uh, relocation in a nearby uh, place somewhere because we have lots of lands, uh, you know, in our country. Uh, that is a fortune that we have, uh, unlike other areas, other uh, you know G7 countries. So policymakers and others uh, should give it a second thought, uh, which is very important uh, in the future. Going on to responses to emergencies, you've been working with the various actors in Manitoba. Uh, specifically, you had an excellent. Um, group of individuals from different parts of the enterprise there. You had people from the military, you had a person from the government of Manitoba, you had people from the private sector. When you see uh, how Manitoba responds to emergencies and how Winnipeg does, are there lessons that you've learned from those observations that you think that the rest of Canada should should know about? Because 
one of the things uh, it seems like all these things are one-off events, but they're not one-off events. They happen again and again across the country, but I don't know how much there's uh, lessons learned across the country from what happens in one place that, you know, extended to another. Lessons have you observed from, from your studies and from your experience in, in Manitoba that you think that folks should learn from outside Manitoba? Thank you, Steve. Um, in terms of lesson learned, uh, I would mention three lessons uh, uh, today uh, just to share with the audience. Uh, first off, I would say that Manitoba is a little unique in a sense that uh, we do face uh, forest fire and uh, flood very often. I mean, almost, uh, uh, you know, uh, except with some exceptions in some of the years, almost every year. So uh, we are uh, really we have developed some SOPs. And uh, if you, uh, I'm talking to uh, my audience here. So if you uh, really go to uh, emergency measures organization of Manitoba government website, you will find uh, they have really developed some of the standard operating procedures uh, in dealing with uh, uh, small scale disasters, not the large scale like 97 flood. Mm -hmm. So I think this is one achievement uh, and, and lesson learned because I am very much, uh, an advocate of preparation, because I strongly believe that uh, the more we prepare, uh, the easier that we are uh, going to you know, uh, manage any kind of disasters when it is, of course, multi-stakeholders uh, uh, participation. So I think uh, SOP is one thing. Second thing, uh, I recall from the presentation of uh, Deputy Minister of EMO, Johanu Botha, uh, who was uh, uh, whose presentation was excellent in terms of outlining, uh, you know, some of the things that uh, I remember uh, we have developed here in our province is early warning system, and I think uh, pre-positioning resources, and uh, I, I still remember in our uh, uh, province we have Web EOC. It's a uh, it's a software on a web-based software uh, through which. Uh, you can understand resource positioning, you can understand where uh, you need certain types of resources at certain period of uh, hours and days. Uh, so I think these uh, web interfaces and resource mobilization, uh, EMO has developed pretty well uh, in our province. And thirdly, I would say that uh, uh, over these past couple of years, what I observed uh, our EMO has uh, also uh, kind of streamlined pretty much the, uh, you know, uh, what you call in the aftermath of the disaster, they dish out uh, funds for reconstruction and uh, other things. So these are uh, pretty much streamlined and it, it, it really means a lot for the uh, people, those who have suffered, especially the, as I mentioned, indigenous communities, they need quick uh, uh, help in terms of rebuilding. So these uh, things have uh, taken place quite a bit. However, uh, Steve, I would like to mention here that uh, to my uh, very humble uh, experience of uh, research in this area, disaster management and preparedness, uh, I do see a lack of our ability of uh, preparation uh, as a uh, group altogether uh, from organizations running from EMO to civil society, from CAF. So this kind of preparedness uh, in terms of exercises like tabletop or simulated exercises, these are not actually happening. And I understand the logistics that involve is, is, is going to be involved in terms of 
facilitating such uh, preparation or preparatory activities. But uh, I do see that we don't do much here in our country uh, because we think that, well, it's uh, uh, province's job to manage disasters as it comes and only in the last resort then CAF will be involved. But anyways, CAF, CAF is being involved uh, uh, in, in most of the uh, major disasters over the past two years, if you recall. So um, uh, if we can consider this part, I would say uh, we can develop some preparatory activities. And if EMO and civil society and you know Red Cross, one of the prime agencies, uh, which also took part in our uh, last workshop uh, remotely, so uh, if we can all come together uh, yearly at least once and we can rehearse our preparation, our standard operating procedures, and we can, uh, you know, and in this regard, uh, Steve, I would like to uh, remind our audience, uh, General uh, Dennis uh, Tebernor, who was, uh, uh, who took part in our uh, workshop in the second day during the networking event. And he, he mentioned that there is a, there is an issue with our, command structure uh, during the uh, disaster management. So this kind of things, I think uh, we can develop and we can uh, do better if we uh, prepare earlier, uh, as I said, maybe once in a, uh, uh, in a whole year, uh, which will give us edge in terms of uh, dealing with situations as it comes. Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges we face is simply politicians don't think as much about preparation as they do about response because anything that benefits them in the long run uh, and it's cost in the short run they're just not, not going to focus on that they're going to focus on things that are very visible so i thought one of the most promising discussions of our conversation at the workshop last week was the notion of building back better that when there's a, a disaster unfortunately there's a moment where people can rethink about where to put people, how to change the infrastructure, maybe not build back communities right on the front of the river, maybe move them back a little bit, that those are the moments of time where there is a combination of urgency and imagination to get things done. But I guess that one of the things that requires is sort of a surge capacity of experts to be able to say, okay, as we're reacting to this thing, let's, or, let's start thinking about what we're going to do. So that way, as we start making the plans for rebuilding, we don't just repeat the designs of the past, and which leads then to more exposure to emergencies of the future. Absolutely. And this is, I think, very important point. I do recall from the presentation of uh, Jody Hanazi from uh, NAIT Edmonton, she was actually uh, referring a case, uh, uh, if I remember, uh, she was referring uh, High River uh, in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. And there was a, you know, uh, the problem of, of having habitation very close to the, uh, and and each time the river flooded and it flushed away the uh, all the you know uh, homes. So yeah, of course, I mean this is really important, and I think it is really pertinent uh, with regards to our uh, indigenous reserves because these are mostly close to the uh, rivers and uh, in the areas which are really vulnerable uh, uh, due to climate change and due to the change of natural uh, you know, uh, events. And uh, this kind of forecast, I think um, I would go back to one of your comments, Steve, really. Um, the willingness of uh, policymakers uh, to address the uh, you know, newly emerged 
you know, frequent natural disasters. I think one way we can motivate uh, our policymakers at the top level uh, is by bringing them into the discussions. For example, um, uh, I, I would like to share with you and with our audience today that uh, uh, the Estonian Deputy Minister here in Manitoba, who was with us on December 5th, he actually wrote back to me that he is very interested to share some of the data because we were talking about an exercise uh, down the road. And he said that he's very willing to see how it works. And uh, he's also, uh, he expressed his desire to uh, come uh, to Toronto to take part in the second workshop because uh, it is running in these you know, parallel themes. So I think uh, this is one uh, uh, initiative that we should continue uh, uh, doing and uh, the ideas of forecasting and year marking vulnerable, you know, uh, landscapes where uh, they, these are susceptible to frequent uh, natural uh, disasters uh, can be made uh, because of the policymakers' willingness to understand the vulnerabilities. Uh, well, that's really terrific. And if you had to say one last thing to to inform the Canadian public about. Uh, domestic emergency management, what we need to do next, what would that be? So dear audience, uh, I, I'm very much enthusiastic about this issue because you are aware uh, a current discourse is going on uh, from our federal level uh, that uh, what do we really mean by uh, employing Canadian armed forces, which is our last bastion of uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, tools and resource in, uh, in so frequently uh, in disaster management. So this is very much uh, in the discussion, uh, including Red Cross is raising also some of the concerns. So I would only uh, uh, let the audience uh, try to understand that uh, disasters uh, are going to be a new normal in our life. Uh, and whether we like it, whether we want it, doesn't matter. Uh, it would come automatically. And within this new normal, we really have to be innovative in terms of using all our resources because Canadian Armed Forces is, is the resource uh, you know, kept within the federal uh, you know, uh, realm. But within the province itself, there are resources which can be better utilized, the civil society actors the indigenous communities with their knowledges and resources, they're also uh, you know, ready to share and do their part. So we just need to find out how to do it better. So mm. uh, this is the first step and we are so grateful for um, uh, Professor Steve, uh, Stephen here uh, today uh, to allow us to explore these ideas through workshops and papers and webinars. So please tune in and we keep uh, keep on uh, you know dialoguing about finding the most effective way to deal with this new normal in the future. Well, I really appreciate that. And I'm very glad that, that we've all found each other because I think as I keep on telling other people, more Canadians have died in the pandemic than all of our wars combined and uh, Canadians that is. And I think that this needs to be a higher priority for not just the Canadian Armed Forces, but for for government, uh, because the frequency of these events is going to is going to continue to increase, and so we better get good at it because it's going to be a regular phenomenon. Um, so thanks. Uh, it was a pleasure to to be, enjoy your hospitality last week at the uh, Canadian Museum of Human Rights. Uh, the workshop was terrific, 
And I'm looking forward to seeing what you and, and Niru and MDAD produce over the next several years. Um, I'm really a big fan of what you guys are doing. And we'll make sure that uh, we bring you out to Ottawa for some of our events. So that way uh, you help inform the community here about, about how to do this stuff better. Thank you, Professor Stephen, uh, for your support. And we do appreciate, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's all about working together. And as you rightly mentioned, uh, we are doing our best from uh, here, but uh, it is all about uh, uh, working together and building knowledge together, what I really uh, love to say. Uh, and uh, we need opportunities. We need space to exercise our brains to find out what we can do better. Canada is a great country, and when I compare uh, my place of birth in Bangladesh, which uh, really faces disasters, uh, I mean, so frequently, uh, almost uh, each year. So I do think that knowledge transfer and knowledge sharing are the two most vital uh, things that we can do through this project. And also, we look forward to present our audience uh, more knowledge uh, on uh, March 16th and 17th in Toronto. So please tune in. And uh, we have our website, uh, www.crric.org forward slash M-I-N-D-S Minds. So we post uh, and we are very much active in social media and uh, sharing our uh, uh, workshop knowledges and uh, uh, events there. So uh, once again, thank you so much, Steve, for inviting me. Again, it's been my pleasure. Uh, enjoy the holidays. Hope you get a good break and have a terrific 2023, hopefully free from nature triggered emergencies. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you.